Welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast. I'm your host, Wyndham Lewis. I'm here with my brother, Jeremy Sartori. It's a Brother, Brother podcast, and today we are having a Brother, Brother book club. And we are talking about All Right, All Right, All Right by Melissa Meritz, uh, the oral history of the film Dazed and Confused. One of the, uh, one of the movies I think we, we sort of have the longest shared history on. Uh, we, we saw it together in the theater. Uh, which I've now found out was a rarity. Sounds like nobody else went to see it in the theater. That is true. Um, it's a it's a really fun book in the sense that it tells you a lot about the behind the scenes uh, world of um, making a movie, getting a movie produced, casting, um, soundtracking, soundtracking a movie, getting you know procuring music rights, all the all the mundane shit that goes into making a film, but. Again, it was one of our, our favorite movies, and so we wanted to take the deep dive. And uh, deep dive, it seems like, you know, this. It's been, I'm, not the, I'm not the millionth person to say this, but it seems like once every 10 years there's a, a generation-defining movie. It's generally nostalgic. Um, you know, they, they sort of compared this one to American Graffiti and Fast Times at Richmond High, but it's the kind of... It's a it's a kind of movie, regardless of how successful it is, that that births a million successful careers, and uh, this one being made outside of mainstream Hollywood, uh, filmed in Austin, Texas, uh, with a Texas-based director and a cast that's sort of half professionals and half amateurs, um, and many professionals for whom it was their first role. Um, this gave birth to a whole generation of. of Famous actors and actresses. Yeah, no, definitely. Hold on one sec. <laughs> <coughs> Sorry. Uh, this also gave birth to, uh, you know, I think, like Fast Times, and you mentioned, and, and that director that you mentioned is Richard Linklater, who's gone on to have a very successful uh, film career as an out, out, still kind of as an outsider, tends to, you know, lives in Texas and, and uh, maintains a lot of production there. Um, the actors that when mentioned could be, uh, you know, from Parker Posey to Matthew McConaughey, Ben Affleck, you know, you've got some of the biggest stars today that came out of this movie. But I think first let's, I'd like love to just chat on like, it's that generational piece that you kind of, that this movie captures that I really think, you know, I'd love to think, oh man, that's my high school experience. And if you grew up in sort of suburban, um, or suburban towns like Wynn and I did, whether it was Charlottesville or, or Ridgewood, New Jersey, or, or uh, Summit, New Jersey, Duxbury, Massachusetts, you know, we tended to drive around a lot, listen to music, smoke pot, and, and you know, get beer however we could. But I also think in my mind, I'm sort of like, oh man, that's how it was for me. And that's obviously how it was, this movie's based in the 70s, portrayed for the 70s, and that's how it was for the 80s for Wynn. But reality is today, it it's still going on, right? I mean, they may have cell phones and Facebook and different ways to, to find the party, but uh, but I guarantee, um, you know, knock on wood, I have two daughters that are soon to be entering the teenage world. You know, if they don't at least go out in the woods and drink beer once, I probably will be disappointed. Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a generational struggle to, to get uh, high and make out. <laughs> uh, but it, it, you know, I like the way that I like the framework. Um, you know, because, and I remember seeing this movie uh, when it came out. Again, I, I took Jeremy and his friend 
Addison, I believe. To yeah, we were in New York City, Midtown. Maybe? I just moved to New York and uh, took you guys to the movie theater to see it. And I remember thinking it was a more melancholy movie than I thought it would be. And that's always a good thing. Um, I found the same true of, of like Rushmore. Yep. Um, where it's darker than I thought. And, and reading about the, um, you know, the gesticulation or the, you know, the sort of um, how this, you know, how this idea came about, it, it makes sense. It's basically... He wanted it to be almost yeah. more melancholy. I mean, there's there's that line at the end of the movie. If this or these are the best years of my life, somebody shoot me. Yeah, and um, <laughs> which is such a great high school feeling. Yeah, and it's a universal feeling. I mean, that is, you know, it, the the great thing is that it's it's sort of billed and, and remembered as the celebratory movie. But what it really is 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 a story is the story of you know teenage ennui. Yeah, you know, the sort of feeling of being trapped and not having agency. And not having the ability to to do whatever you want, not knowing how big the world is, um, and and sort of you know, yeah, disappointment, muscling through it. I thought it also captured the different different levels of of you know. There's the well, first of all, Muslim. You say your last name again. Merits. Merits does a great job, kind of building up in the first half, sort of the you know Richard Linklater's early career. He made Slacker, which was kind of an indie darling, and this this. Also captures when I don't know if you felt like this too. And as a side note, I had a brief dalliance on the on the crew side of, of movies, actually in Austin and New York City. So I've had some experience working in that world and in that environment. Yeah, with some of these people actually. And when as a screenwriter, so as we've mentioned on other pods, so we, we do sort of dip our toe in, in that world or have, I should say, not at all is what I made in my career, but I spent some years doing that. And I think she does a great job of that 90s feeling of the indie revolution. There was kind of this new, just like the 70s had, you know, kind of the, the Scorsese and Coppola revolution and, and, the, and the directors kind of took control. I think you had a new rebirth of people influenced by those guys that kind of came through you, you that. sort of guerrilla filmmaking, yeah. Sundance, Miramax. And there's uh, no better version of that than Slacker, really. I yeah. think Slacker kind of encompassed, that's a movie about people walking around Austin. talking Austin and then having conversations and it's really well done and you kind of get a sense of how planned out that movie was because it feels very natural and very different than anything I saw at the time it feels like something it's you a big reason I moved with. Austin in a weird way you yeah know? no I I'm, that movie came out when I was in college and I was in college in a very similar um environment in Amherst Mass and uh it you know you saw that, and you and you thought everybody thought they could take a, a video camera out and and make that movie uh, in in a day. Yep. And you know, it turns out, and maybe you'll have those conversations when it comes down. I could have done that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I should have thought of that. Um, that's the kind of you know, that's the inspiration. That is the inspiration. Yeah. I could do that, and I should. I could. And I should do that. that, and I think Richard Linklater could do it, and I think a lot of people do it. and did do it. And so the catalyst is a guy who makes a movie that has some buzz. He wants to make a teenage movie. I think he's somebody who she, you know, definitely gets a lot of info from, and he's a pretty uh, documented his this time in his life via diary. So there's a lot of stuff there. When we'll have to fill in some of the facts because I read the book probably two, a month or two months ago, and um, it's pretty fresh. Pre, in my mind. yeah, and, and when just finished it, but. I've what I liked was she kind of lays out the groundwork for making this movie. You know, the American Graffiti is what the studio wants it is going to bill it as. He wants to just sort of make a quintessential movie about like how sucky and boring it is to be a high school guy. I think the funniest, <laughs> the funniest through line in this 
in this book, and it's the it's the singular sort of through line in this book, is that is everybody him sort of having a very um, dedicated and decided vision of what he wants to make, and every single person to whom he tells this vision or to whom, with whom he shares this vision completely misinterprets it. Right. Um, so every step along the way, he's saying, I'm going to make this movie. It's about the last day of high school in uh, 1976. And everyone's like, oh, like American Graffiti. Yeah. He's like, whatever. Yeah. And, Just you know, wants to get a name. Oh, like yeah. Fast Times. Yeah, yeah whatever. Sure. Or like, um, you know, it's going to be like Porky's. Yeah. Whatever. <laughs> it's a stoner movie. Whatever. Exactly. Yeah. But it's, you know, it never veers, it never, in his brain, never... Uh, Captures never, what he was looking never for. Never veers away from uh, his, his central thesis, which is... Um, being in high school sucks, and I'm going to show, um, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna show a group of prisoners basically yeah. uh, who want to get out. And I think one thing, you know, we'll talk about the cast. I mean, it's kind of three parts of the book, and we'll kind of touch on each part. Um, but you know, talking about the beginning now, getting funded, getting producers, you know, that that casting, which I thought was was very interesting, and and I know. Um, was it Jim James or not Jim James? My morning Jim Jackson. Jim Jackson, who was the producer, and was he the sorry talent? Who was the talent guy in it? Uh, his name was Don. His name was Don. Okay, Don. <laughs> so some of these names are hard to hard to remember. These are Hollywood guys. Who was brilliant, really, though, and and had cast things like Dog Day Afternoon, and you know, it also was this time in Hollywood where you had these kind of sub. Um, divisions of big studios that were, you know, giving millions of dollars to independent filmmakers to do something because there was a buzz around it. What was it? it was this is pre Goodwill Hunting, as we'll, yeah. you know, this but is pre. But it was also concurrent with the the great, you know, indie band signing. Story. Right. Totally. Yeah. This is post Nirvana. Yep. Post. Um, pre Clerks, I think. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Slacker came before that. Um, so you know, these were the first sort of. Uh, this is. So basically, Sundance, you know, independent, you know, independent film festival, um, you know, starts breeding success stories. Yeah. Uh, Soderbergh being the first with Sex Lies and Videotape, and so they start, and that was a uh, became a, a very successful lucrative movie, movie too. Made yeah. And so basically, what happened is like it doesn't, and always in entertainment business, they they're following a trend. They're not establishing a trend. They're they're. They were like, well, that worked, so yeah. let's throw a bunch of money and find the next Soderbergh. Let's find the next Nirvana. Let's find. Let's go to Seattle and sign everybody who owns a guitar. Um, and so you, you basically, uh, you have the studios on the precipice of, of this, you know, weird, you know, um, uh, sort of uh, transitional period in movie making, and Linklater... As uh, a beneficiary, he he slackers is a, a weird success. Um, it it actually went national, um, mm-hmm. you know. After uh, uh, and I think it cost thirty two thousand dollars to make. And yeah, it makes a couple million bucks probably, and so they throw money at his next project. A um, the seven million that he got for something like yeah, that. Daisy yeah, Daisy, which you know at the time was like holy. I think I in the book he's just like ah, like yeah. yeah. I don't need that much, but I'll take it. Um, I think the other thing, too, that he was determined to do, and, and I think that Linkletter does in a lot of his movies, Don Phillips was the uh, casting guy, um, and so is that, uh, you know, Linkletter puts a lot of himself in there, and in his experience, 
And the thing is, it's one of those experiences when you see Days and Confused, you, you, this comes across, and I think you and I were both taken by it at the time we saw it and, and still are, was that high school was not as uh, <laughs> not as walled off as, as it people seem to, you know, kind of portray it in Hollywood. You know, there is definitely cliques and nerds and jocks and things like that, but I think Linkletter, who was a star athlete, you know, and, and had heart murmur and, you know, he even says in the book, like if, you know, it had been 10 years later, that would have been solvable and he would have been maybe a pro baseball player, you know, or at least a, a you know, high end, you know, college baseball player and, and a prospect. Um, but he also was a guy who liked music and film and, and had other interests that were sort of artistic. Um, and I think Days and Confused did kind of a blending of the like, you know, it was one of the first movies that didn't make the stoner just a total like moron or you know make the you know jock guys beat the hell out of the nerds every time I and mean, there's that in the movie because those things do happen and everything goes but for the most part it was sort of this cross section of like yeah we just kind of like we're all in the same boat a little bit mm-hmm. and um you know there's different factions and things like that and i think a lot of that also came across which is the other part that she nails of the cast of this movie there's this is the you know what is it the outsiders the breakfast club the, the sort of yeah taps the the early um, you know, kind of ensemble cast that then becomes the people that you're going to spend the next 20 years yeah. with, you know? I mean, and the, the fact is, Renee Zellweger has an uncredited... Uncredited part, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and Jason Lee has an off-camera... Yeah. He's, he's the one... Um, He's the one that yells, uh, fucker, I did. Oh, really? He's, nice. Yeah. It's like. He was just happens to be one of the actress's boyfriends at the time. Yeah. And he was, and he was hanging actress. around. Yeah. Like, he was a pro skateboarder at the time and, like, hanging around. Yeah. And you've got, you know, as we mentioned, Ben Affleck. I mean, the the Matthew McConaughey story in this is, is great, you know? Yeah. And there's three different sides to it, right? There's the, like, good looking Texas guy who happened to be in a bar talking to the producer. There's the guy who knew exactly what the fuck he was doing yeah. <laughs> talking to that producer, which I tend to believe. Um, you know, and then there's the, you know, legend kind of that goes on from there of, of Wooderson. It really becomes Matthew McConaughey's book a little bit. I mean, first of all, the title is taken from the catchphrase that he brought to the movie that he ad-libbed. All right, yep. all right, all right. Um, the movie's most memorable line, um, it, which is super creepy, but also very funny. Um, you know, that's the thing yeah. with them high school girls. I get older and they, they stay, stay the same, the same age. age. Um, and all of these people were based... So that character, Wooderson, is named for a guy that Linklater went to high school with yeah. in Huntsville, Texas. But, um, you know, it really is the embodiment of, of McConaughey and his family. And His older brother was his influence. And I think they nail a good thing in that too, where like... That line was kind of meant to be a little creepy, and maybe this guy was meant to be not likable when Linklater kind of wrote him, but then they were like, oh. But it's this, McConaughey. <laughs> yeah, he's so likable. It's, it's the power of personality. <laughs> yeah. there, there was a, a shift within the making of this film where you know, the breakout star was meant to be a fellow by the name of Sean Andrews, who plays Pickford, the guy who's... Kind of the, um, the rich kid yeah. with the you know, parents girlfriend. Are yeah. He's going to throw a party. And as, Which is a great little McCona- segment, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> as McConaughey, you know, sort of just grows in reputation during the filming of this movie, McConaughey just sort of subsumes that guy's airtime. <laughs> totally. And, you know, the one of the, you know, more interesting, you know, anecdotal pieces of this is, you know, McConaughey's father died during the filming of this movie. And he went, celebrated his dad's... Uh, farewell and uh was back on set the next day because 
he knew what he wanted. Yeah. And he knew his dad would have wanted that. And this was career making. And he knew that it's rare to find somebody with the presence of a 23-year-old Matthew McConaughey, a guy who knows that he's getting his shot and takes it. Yeah, and a guy who was at film school at the time at UT and not your typical film student either. Was you know? an actor. Yeah, exactly, which is brilliant. So I think like one thing she really captures too is just that summer camp feel that these guys had, and I think that Linkletter too allowed. You know, there was a big um, part of this book was Linkletter giving each character a mixtape, like, "Hey, I think this is what your character would listen to. Like, jam out on these tunes and, mm-hmm. and see what you think." Or so music was a huge part, and we can talk about the soundtrack in a minute, sort of the, the post production piece. But I thought what. Um, I know you worked on a long-running TV show. I have worked on a couple of movies. There is a summer camp feel. You, you end up becoming okay. very close with people and, you know, attracted to different people and, and sort of um, also... You're, you also regress. Yeah, you do. You regress into a kid. You know, you form little cliques and little clubs and, and uh, it's long, really long days and really insulated environments. Intense environments. Yeah, yeah. and intense environments that can go from intense and boring too at times. And so you had all these young actors in a kind of... In a hotel. In a hotel in Austin. And at the time, Austin had sort of still was a little unknown, it you was, know? Yeah, it was still um, very unknown. Yeah, no. I mean, this is one of the things... I think Slacker was one of the things that brought it to people's attention. Sure, totally. I think Austin was a sleepy, weird town in Texas, college town where, where UT is. And I think Slacker, look, I moved there after that. I had a friend who was going to UT and was like, oh, I think you'd like it down here. And it was kind of the burgeoning of that town yeah. becoming a major sort of uh, culture center, I it's guess. It's about to become Silicon Valley. but it, Yeah, uh, it already may be. Um, um, but yeah, no, I remember going down there for the first time in the late 90s and it was still yeah. uh, very weird. And going back in 2013... And, and when we say weird, we're coming from the Northeast, and we mean this is the middle of in Texas. A good, good you know? So in a good way. Yeah. It's a little blue spot in the middle of Texas <laughs> yeah. where, people, you know, it, and it did have that. Um, it was funny to me the first time I went down to Texas to visit Jeremy um, that, you know, the every punk rocker I met played high school football. Right. Yeah, there was um, kind of a... I remember thinking that was kind of interesting. Like and there was the a, other part was every kid I knew that was into good music knew every word to every Merle Haggard song. Right. <laughs> they grew up with that. That was their stones. Yeah, there was a juxtaposition there for sure. And like... Um, yeah, so I think this movie captures that time, that place, and you... And like we said, we have... Uh, Jason... London, Jeremy London, I can't Jason remember which brother, Jason London, yeah, sorry, I read the book around Thanksgiving, and then you have Ben Affleck, you have, you know, uh, Joy Lauren Adams, so there's all these actors um, that kind of come into this space, and they're really, they're almost treated to something, an experience they'll never have again, which is very much a part of this book, where it's sort of their first big film break. Pre-cell phone. Pre-cell phone, yeah, personal computer, really. Yeah, we're talking about cassette tape, mixtapes. We're talking about... Um, Which does make a big difference in your behavior, I think. Oh, my God. If, if this was today, these people would be all over TMZ, TMZ you know, um, including, you know, uh, Mila Jonovich, you know, yeah, at 16, yeah. getting married, you know, to uh, Sean, Andrews. Sean Andrews. So, I mean, but the other piece of that that's kind of interesting is their first experience ends up being the most free and kind of open experience that they're probably that they I'd say 80% of them claim they ever had in yeah. making another movie I will say you that, know you know it 
uh, in the same way that I've always said that, you know, everybody who moves to New York moved there when it was cool. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the fact that it was their first experience explains why the intensity of the fun was... I mean, it was a perfect storm scenario. Yeah. But also, it, your first experience in this world is your best experience. Yep. Um, much the same as I, I will explain myself a little bit more clearly, you know, everybody who moves to, everybody who's ever lived in New York, um, you know, that first year that you're in New York becomes the benchmark for when things were cool. Right. Um, you know, and, and for everybody it's different, but everybody moved there and everybody had that yeah. same, you know, sort of initial experience. Uh, it can only be new ones. No, totally. So... This movie gets made. It's a flop. Absolute fucking. <laughs> it's flop. a fucking disaster. <laughs> Which is crazy when you think it's marketed about. so poorly. It's it, there's it, a lot of stuff that's, that's just a, wrong. I think it goes hand in hand with another uh, another phenomenal Texas uh, film uh, called Office Space. Yeah. Which is eminently quotable. Like everybody Judge. loves it. Everybody's seen it, and absolutely nobody saw it in the theater. No. Absolutely not. I mean, you and I did see Days and Confused theater. I actually, I saw Rushmore and Days and Confused in the theater, well, and I'm happy about that. And I, I, I want my street cred now. I want my nerd card now. Yeah, because but I like, actually looked forward to these movies for about eight months. Yeah, I read about them before. before but they came out. that said, yeah, nobody went to see this movie. It was billed as kind of a, a goofball stoner, stoner comedy. To your point, too, yeah, if you were looking for that. I remember actually when it came out on VHS, having a bunch of buddies over, getting probably stoned and watching it. And I think people just weren't as psyched as I was after it. You know, it was like, um, there wasn't, I wouldn't call it melancholy, but there is a bit of like monotony to the, you know, flow of it. It's a. It's funny to go back to Fast Times, which is the sort of defining um, high school film of my generation. Um, You know, I would say. Two, you know, the two things it has in common with Days to Confused is one, it's a way better movie than it's it given should, credit it for than it's marketed as. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's a and it's a the writing is phenomenal, yeah. the story is phenomenal, the characters, the acting, everything about yeah. it is incredibly well crafted, and it's dismissed as kind of a joke. Right. And the other, yeah, you think it's going to be like Porky's or you know like Screwballs too, and it's actually or, or Pineapple Express or whatever the fuck you want to call. It. Too, I think true. I'm getting some serious '80s uh, VHS store. I think I went back to the the Betamax <laughs> <laughs> section, but um, we'll get a little more current. Pineapple movies. Express and some of those movies. But the other is that it, it le- you know it is a much more melancholy movie, and that level of feeling is not. Not always um, what you're anticipating, and so the first viewing might be a little bit, might you know, throw you sideways a little bit. But it, it, you know, I think in both cases, you go back and you understand the depth of the feeling, and and that's what I mean. Despite the degree of specificity of both Fast Times and Days, you know, one being Southern California, the Valley, and and one being Austin, Texas, it's. It's the specificity that really brings out the universal universality of feeling. Yes, yeah. it's you know those songs and that you know degree, you know hanging out in a parking lot. Um, you know the quest for a keg. Yeah. The, the trying. You know the attempt at underage um, purchasing of, of alcohol. Yeah. The not the being dismissed. The you know sort of. Uh, 
I think too, like the um, the hierarchy and the different, you know, like the you know the, the story. Sorry, we should mention too if you haven't seen Days Confused. The story centers around last day of school, last day of school, but also a petition or a uh, you know signed drug pledge. drug pledge by the you know football coaches. And, and I think if you when you read the book, you realize how. Richard Linklater definitely has one streak, which is anti-establishment or anti-being told what to do. And it's a, you know, quarterback, star quarterback, who's kind of one of those, you know, I guess... Um, I guess you would call it a high school polymath. Yeah. Guy, just can kind of blend in guy that kind of flows through the chess club and the, you know, the, the hottest girlfriend and, you know, everything else. Um, but at the same time, he thinks the pledge is bullshit and and you know so the whole thing sort of that's i guess the one uh through line that brings you back there is this are you going to sign this thing man or you know whatever and then it's interspersed with all these different characters you know the the stoner character and you know be a lot better if you were you know and just lines like that and and um the party that you mentioned you know kind of the party getting busted which is a great scene by the way the keg truck pulling up when the parents are leaving and just being like uh, like yeah, is, you know, there's all those, all those. I think yeah, you talk a little bit more about Richard Linklater, uh, sort of anti-establishment um, streak because it's pretty important and and it's you know it's a it's the thing that got the you know yeah, got and, all of his movies made and let's yeah we'll build that into kind of the music and then I'd, let's like close it with just something that you learned from the book that you thought was cool. Um, so you know the thing that definitely stood out about Linklater and we're a big fan um, of Linklater's work and I feel like we're there you know I've watched his stuff since Slacker is you know he like I mentioned he was kind of a star athlete but obviously you know had had other interests besides sports and you know if you've seen Boyhood or movies like that I grew up in a divorced home and ended up living with his dad in Houston and, and mom seemed to have you know maybe a string of son of a son of a college professor yep. and a lawyer I lawyer yeah and, and um, you know may have had some not great men in his life via his mother boyfriends or whatever but he just had this sort of take of like i'm gonna do the things i want to do and i'm sick of you know i think if you grow up under the baby boomer generation like when and i are both gen xers a little bit you feel a lot of like hey man the great days are behind you or like this is what it should be like and and things like that and i think he really had a uh um, and I, I drive to be like, fuck you, you know, to that. So whether it was, you know, you have to film in Hollywood, fuck you, you know, like we're going to do it this way. Like, no, we're not, you know, and I think he really went to bat for what he believed in. Believed in. And I, I think when and I both, you know, in talking about it related a little bit to the Tom Petty doc, like when you watch that Tom Petty doc to mention a lot, but the most, the thing I walked away from most from that was, wow, I really didn't know how much he fought for his art. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the thing you walk away from this book, and, and Melissa does such a great job on, is that Linkletter is not going to fucking give in for his art. And I'm sorry, sound like the stoner guy that's not going to fucking give in for his art, man. But, like, it's just something that, you know, is, is vitally important. And I really respect that in a huge way. I also think that I relate to that just kind of anti-authority thing. Like, no matter what... I question authority <laughs> and not to the degree of blowing up my life or like Linkletter is a successful filmmaker. Right. Yeah. I mean, but to the degree of like, it's a, there's something to that, that I really respect, there's an uncompromising you know, quality yeah. to, to what he's doing. And, and, you know, this is, um, you know, and it's reflective and relatable. Yeah. It's ref- but it's, a, it's, it's an admirable. To yeah. Me. Um, if you, you know, dealing with, uh, an industry that's, that's 
got a lot of silliness involved and a lot of extra layers of management. Um, it's uh, and a lot of people who who sort of uh, you know sort of sidle up and take credit. Yeah. Um, there's you know this. Well, and the the clash of the movie is him and the producer um, James, who like Jax, sorry Jax, Jim Jax, who you know there's just that constant tension. And if you've been on a film set, that's not uncommon. But if but in this movie, you know, you have kind of the rookie. Mm-hmm. In, in Linkletter and The Outsider, whatever you want to call him. And then you've got this sort of industry vet who feels like, you almost get the sense like he feels like he's doing the kid a favor. You know, he certainly saw talent in the script. He certainly believes that, yeah. Yeah, and you know, and and the frustration, I think, with, to your point, what you were kind of touching on, I wrote this movie, I know what I want it to be, I'm directing it, I'm doing those things, which kind of, you know, not, not to make it sound like, you know, I'm the the czar here, the, you know, kind of all end all be all, but stop telling me how to do this because all you're here for is to make sure that like, you know, things flow or, or, you know, to have the money and, and Jax really took on kind of an inappropriate role with the actors and also just a, a big, you know, role in kind of pushing Linkletter around. And, and you get that towards the end where the movie sort of pre-flopping at the theaters and even the test groups were great you know it just yeah. didn't make any sense you know the way they tested the movie things like that and that brings us also to the movie really got known in some degree for the soundtrack yeah the soundtrack outstalled um the movie by a lot <laughs> and i don't think we have time to get into the the particulars of of how link later royally fucked up the yeah I mean for as much as we admire Linkletter there's definitely some things hindsight that you could look back on and be like uh but it's a you know it's a classic rock soundtrack it's sort of and it's funny because it sort of um, ran concurrently with um, the made or the TV commercial for Freedom Rock. Yep. Um, Which is a big... Yeah, I mean, they mentioned that, and it, that was, if, if you remember, and when and I certainly do, cable television, two sort of uh, prop hippies, yeah. you know, listening to Sweet Home Alabama and being like, this is Freedom hey, Rock. Hey, man, is that Freedom Rock? <laughs> yeah. We'll turn it up. Yeah, which is like a um, running Saturday Night Live joke and everything else. But it's funny, too, because there, you know, there was a, a definite shift in the way movie soundtracks were marketed. Um, I'd say post-Saturday Night Fever, but it really was post-Big Chill soundtrack, where Big Chill went back, got all these Motown uh, hits, and, you know, packaged them under the Big Chill soundtrack, and it sold, you know, probably 10 million copies. It was was unavoidable in the 80s. And Dazed and Confused, similarly, went back to the 70s, mined all these, you know, sort of, you know, muscle car rock classics from, you know, the likes of Foghat and Aerosmith and not Led Zeppelin, notably. <laughs> yeah. um, but, and, you know, just repackaged it and it, it wound up selling multi-million copies. Yeah. And then actually um, fostered a, a sequel. There was Dazed and Confused and there was... Oh, yeah, Dazed and Confused too, the soundtrack, yeah. Dazed and Confused. And I would say, too, growing up as a... This was my sort of high school years... Uh, not the seventies, the but when the movie came out and the soundtrack came out, you know, it's not that you weren't like aware of Foghat and bands like that, but you kind of you know you had your sort cool. of trending. Yeah, it wasn't cool, and it kind of did bring back that nostalgia, like classic rock seventies um, kind of vibe. And yeah, you're talking Kiss, Frampton, Foghat. Exactly, Frampton. you weren't. Yeah, nobody was listening to Frampton pre. You know, kind of watching Days Confused and the soundtrack coming out. 
Um, so it became kind of instrumental in, in, in reintroducing. reintroducing it and also brought the movie to people. Yeah, and people also had the soundtrack and heard the soundtrack and then were like, oh, I should see this movie. And, and give Cock Rock credibility. And I remember by the time I was in college, this movie was just sort of a staple, like Fast Times, like, you know, Animal House, like any of these kind of great classics of youth culture gone, you know, or just youth. But for sake of time, let's just kind of close it. I think we both really enjoyed the book for, on a number of, of reasons that we've gone over here, but... Um, what was something that you kind of took away from the book that you thought was really cool that you wouldn't have maybe known or, or whatever, just kind of in general reading interviews and things like that? Um, I mean, let's see. Doesn't I, be that specific, but no, no. I think well, there's some there's some great stories about uh, music procurement, which sounds about as dull as it, it actually is. Um, but there's uh, you know Linklater actually full on losing his mind in a in an open letter to Robert Plant about uh, using... Right, to Robert. To, so and he, to think about this structure here, this is a guy who barely got $7 million to make a movie, and we're talking about 30 Robert old, Plant. 30-year-old kid. <laughs> and um, he, so he gets permission from Jimmy Page to use... Um, rock and roll. Rock and roll for the, the coda to the movie it was going to play over the closing credits, um, which instead became Slow Ride by Foghat. Yeah. Um, and then he approaches Robert Plant, and Robert Plant says no. And so he goes on full-on fucking jihad against Robert Plant, calls him a stupid former construction worker <laughs> in an open letter in the... Uh, in yeah, the, the non-talent if he wasn't good-looking or something. Yeah. If he was pretty bad. Was Austin Crown, you know, Austin, saying he was just yeah, a pretty Crown. boy and he had no talent and blah, blah, blah. And Robert Plant just happened to be a recording in Austin at the time and, and read it and... Uh, Linklater's great fear was running into Robert Plant <laughs> after he wrote this thing, but it, you know Robert Plant just sort of you know having no idea why he was getting this full on. And by the way, if you've recorded music, you have the right to say no, and totally. you have the right to yeah. to charge money to use that music. I don't. That's that. That's the one. Uh, mindset that I didn't understand. Well, him. and you don't understand it because it's first of all it's very naive, right? Like yeah. He's obviously young and whatever. But the second part is you're an artist. Yeah. And you would feel just, and I'm sure, you know, he doesn't, you noted in the book that he doesn't quite apologize or say, oh, that was dumb, which is interesting because I didn't quite pick that up when I read it. But, um, but it is, you know, in hindsight, I wonder what he thinks of that. No, he thinks <laughs> and, it's stupid. Yeah. But, he, but he, he'll never say I was wrong. Right, right. And that's interesting. Um, I think the thing that I kind of walked away from was one of the reasons I think this movie succeeds in, in a way is with an ensemble cast, which is not easy and, and not, there was no sort of clear star or the people that were supposed to be the clear stars end up being, was the approach of like from a guy who was a baseball pitcher and on teams his life. And I really liked that. And he kind of threw it out to the team. Like who the fuck's going to step up and hit a home run here? And it was Parker Posey. It was Matthew McConaughey, you know, Parker Posey's ad lib line of like, Wipe that face. What, what was it? I was laughing. Wipe that face off your head. Yeah, wipe that face off your head, bitch. You know, or whatever. And you know, those were just you know. And it was like, oh, we're gonna keep filming her because she's on fire right now, she's or or you know, and um, you know, Ben Affleck playing the like just perfect angry asshole jock, like of just the guy who stays back. But those guys kind of the rise, and um, and I thought that like it was just an interesting take from somebody who from the sports person that like I could just see it like oh this guy is like he treated his movie like he was the manager of a baseball team. totally exactly nailed it and, and like there's when Sean Andrews and Mila Jovovich 
didn't decided you know we're having a bad we're, we're having a contract trouble. negotiation we're yeah. running into trouble he, he brought in relief pitchers <laughs> totally and I thought that was kind of brilliant and and uh, I really see that in the movie today but um, I think you know we both highly recommend this book if you have seen Days Confused if you like Richard Linklater or all of the above it does a great job of I'm a, both of us are huge oral history fans but I think this also does just a create a really good job of context Melissa Maris does a, gr- a great job of building the context in each chapter, what was going on at the time, what was going on in Hollywood, what was going on with Linkletter and some of the actors. And, um, yeah, it's a really fun read, and, and it was yeah. my birthday present, so thank you, Wayne. Yeah, it's, well, it's, it's up there, to me, it's up there with uh, Please Kill Me, Meet Me in the Bathroom. Agreed, yeah. Some of the other uh, great uh, oral Saturday Night Live. Yeah. Um, so with that... Shall we uh, take a quick break and listen to a little uh, fog hat, of course, a little slow ride, and then we'll come back and end this how we always end it. Welcome to the Brother, Brother, Brother podcast, and today, Wynn and I are uh, sharing our love for the book, All Right, All Right, All Right, The Oral History of Days Confused, and um, we're going to end this episode like we end every episode, and that is, uh, Wynn, what are you listening to? Well, it's funny you should ask. Um, I am watching a lot of TV. We are... uh, you don't still say. Pandemic, <laughs> uh, still full pandemic mode. Um, and I have uh, been really enjoying, I shouldn't say really enjoying because it's kind of dark, but uh, Bear Town on HBO. It's a Swedish, um, kind of a, you know, uh, it's a Swedish limited series. I think it's a five-parter uh, about a minor league hockey team and um, a crime amidst a minor league hockey team in northern Sweden. Um, which sounds about as appealing as uh, <laughs> a pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> but it's actually really good. I really like it. Um, and uh, I've been watching Alan versus Pharaoh as well, which I oh. am not finding uh, as enjoy. You know, I'm not enjoying it, rehashing the uh, Woody Allen experience very much. Um, but Beartown, big, big ups for Beartown. I really like it. Hopefully... It sticks to landing. Hopefully, I'm not recommending something that two episodes in has peaked. Um, but um, well, next episode you can let us know. Yeah, right maybe now. three. Yeah. How about you? What do you listen? Um, to? So yeah, weirdly, you know, I'm one episode behind. Yeah, and then the um, I've been so watching Bear Town as well. I just finished the first episode last night. I enjoyed it as well. So so far so good. And then yeah, the Julian Baker album is just came out and gosh I don't have my phone in front of me I can't remember the name which little is Oblivion. Little Oblivion thanks um, there's been a lot of hype and press 
of this album, I know her more from Boy Genius work than I do her solo work, so I hadn't really dived into her solo work. I think the album's fantastic. I'm really into it. It's really good. It's uh, it's a lot larger than I thought it would be. Um, she's, you know, great guitar player, great voice, and I think the songs are just really good. It, it captures kind of a... This is going to sound weird, but in my first take, kind of a line between, and I know her and Phoebe Bridges are good friends and in Boy Genius together, but Phoebe Bridges and St. Vincent a little bit. It, it sort of mixes that kind of production with just a really strong songwriting and, and strong voice. So I've been enjoying that quite a bit. And um, yeah, I mean, I think uh, other than that, I've no been reading. Land. We, we oh, yeah. You, well, you talked about that one in depth last one. So. Nomadland for sure. I highly recommend A Great Slice of Life. And then I'm also reading Shiggy Bane, which I feel like we've rehashed on this a lot too, which is fantastic. So I'm always going to be probably like a month behind the other brothers on this pod due to, uh, I'm slow. So Due to uh, actually having work to do. Yeah, work and, and uh, whatever. Anyways, so yeah, on that note, um, should we flip uh, a couple of songs on the playlist? Yes. All right. Who wants to go first? I'm going to go first because I think there's, I feel like there's a glaring omission on, on this. And tell me if I'm wrong, but is Don't Fear the Reaper on? Ooh, it is not. Burnin' is. Ah, so I'm going to put Don't Fear the Reaper on nice. in, in honor of. Full version a, or the single oh, version? The full version? Yeah, you got to go with that breakdown. I honestly don't think um, it's in Dazed and Confused, but it. No, but it might as well be. <laughs> um, I'm kind of torn but i think i'm gonna go with another classic and i think i'm gonna do jailbreak by thin lizzie oh nice because i just yeah there's no thin lizzie on there and um although you know that is also not on the days confused i believe it was considered it was considered thin lizzie was definitely considered and i just love that song yeah i'm i'm shocked you know the, the things you know i can make a very long list of songs that i can't believe weren't on the soundtrack but again um you read this book and you find out that Linklater was such a stickler for period detail, that anything that there was a song that, yeah, that didn't Lizzie come out, right? Hadn't come out on the last like, day of school in '76. Yeah, two weeks later. And yeah, <laughs> so that there's your there's your insight into the mind of uh, inside baseball, yeah. Richard Linklater. Anyway, all right, great. Well, thanks, Wyndham. We'll uh, talk soon. I'm Wyndham Lewis. On behalf of my brothers Jeremy Sartori and Christian Lewis, thank you very much for listening to the Brother 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 podcast. Many thanks also to our heroic producer, Damian Kendall, and to Simon Doom for our epic intro music. Learn more about the pod at brotherpod.com, follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and it's extremely helpful if you rate and review us on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.